So like Brad mentioned, those of you who have been with us for the last couple of months will know that we've been <clears throat> going through a series um, through the, these pilgrim psalms, and we've, we've called the series uh, Prayer on the Journey. And you can probably look at me and with my athletic accountant's physique, you can probably tell I've, I've done my fair share of tramping journeys in my time, starting from a young age. I am the chiselled young guy on the right there. A couple of things to note is the patriotic Auckland rugby jersey. And just to clarify for those born since the year 2000, those are not underpants that I'm going tramping in. <laughs> that, that's what shorts looked like in the last century, all right? So just clarifying. My that's my dad and my brother. My tramping companions have got a bit cuter over the years. Some of you are going to recognise those little guys. They don't look like that anymore. They're 17. They're unconscious in our household right now. Just to, that's, that's what 17-year-olds do. The reason I start off with this, I've, I've actually got an exciting journey coming up soon. Uh, my, my, there's a two-person tramping party, uh, world famous in New Zealand. It's my dad and my sister. They've just done heaps and heaps. And they have invited me and my brother along to do the Milford Track in November. I'm pretty excited about this. Apparently, my role is Sherpa. Now, I'm not too sure what that means, but I think it means I'm there for my brains, basically. So I'm doing the Milford Track. And something else that I'm quite excited about is that they have this tradition. Uh, the end-of-journey meal is, is quite a traditional thing for them. They get off the track. The first thing they do is they have this. There's a lot of science behind this. Um, if you were in the changing sheds of the All Blacks last night, this is like protein replacement. There's at least, there's got to be at least another couple of awesome food groups in there. <laughs> this is what we do. This is an important post-journey or end-of-journey tradition. And you're probably sitting there thinking, how did they let this guy up the front with such a stupid <laughs> illustration to kick off? But there is a reason for that. And the reason is that as we get to the end of our Pilgrim Psalm series, this series that's taken us from Psalm 120, we're at Psalm 134 today, what we're looking at is an end of the journey tradition. And it's, 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 it's a high point in this Pilgrim Psalm series, and I think there's some real encouragement and, and some really exciting stuff there for, for us as well. So if, if you've got a Bible with you, I'd love you to just grab and turn with me please to Psalm 134. It's a really short psalm. It's the shortest of these pilgrim psalms, these songs of ascent. It's only three verses long. So if you can turn to Psalm 134, we'll read together from, from verse 1. Psalm 134, a song of ascent. Praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who minister by night. In the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. And may the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, bless you from Zion. And when I first started looking at this, I thought, what? how does this particular psalm, this smallest of all these songs of ascent, how does this one get the nod to be the last one, the kind of final word in all of this? And, and what's really going on? It's pretty short. Who's talking? What's, what's happening? And what does it mean for us today? And I think as we look at it, if we answer three really simple questions, 
we're going to understand why it was so important for them, for the, for the pilgrims, and as well why it is so encouraging and important for us today. So three really simple questions that are going to help us get what the psalm's going on about. Who's asking who? It's a psalm, it's a request. Who's asking who? What do they want? And why do they want it? So first of all, who's asking who? And it's, it's pretty straightforward when we think about the context of the pilgrim psalms. These are psalms sung by the pilgrims who came to Jerusalem three times a year for the three major festivals that they had. So we're talking the most likely candidates for who's doing the asking, who's asking for the Lord to be praised are the pilgrims. Who are they asking to do that when, they talk, when they're addressing it to you servants of the Lord? who minister by night in the house of the Lord, who, who are in the sanctuary, and they're asking them, hey, lift up your hands in the sanctuary. When we understand a bit about the temple, we, we remember that there's quite strict rules about what was to go on in the temple, who could do what. Anyone can turn up there and worship and, and recognize God, but not everyone ministered in the temple, and particularly not everyone could get to go into the sanctuary. If we go to First Chronicles 23 we see this. We see the duty of the Levites, the, the people from the tribe of Levi, their duty was to help Aaron's descendants, Aaron's descendants were the priests, to help Aaron's descendants in the service of the temple of the Lord. They were also to stand every morning to thank and praise the Lord. They were to do the same in the evening. And if we jump back to First Chronicles chapter 9, those who were musicians Heads of Levite families stayed in the rooms of the temple and were exempt from other duties because they were responsible for the work day and night. So we're talking about, in, in our Psalm 134, we're talking about the pilgrims who are making this request for pra the praise of God to the Levites and in particular the priests as well. What are they asking them then to do? If that's who's doing the asking, what is it that they actually want? And it seems pretty straightforward. They're asking them to praise the Lord. Lift up their hands and praise the Lord. And it makes sense. If you can think, if you've ever been to a huge conference, particularly a Christian conference, something that you're really passionate about, you get to the end of it, you try and imagine what it must have been like for the pilgrims here. People who have traveled long distances from potentially quite hostile environments where they're misunderstood as, as people who belong to God. And now they've been in Jerusalem with this throng of their fellow believers, just recognizing, celebrating, <laughs> praising God. And they get to the end of that, and they're on this tremendous high, and they basically just want the praise to continue. And so at a surface level, that's what they ask for, just that praise would be given to God. But it's more than just words that they're asking for. And this is almost hidden, but it's quite important. And what we see is if you look at verse 3, you'll see that there's a little gap between verse 3 and verse 2. Verses 1 and 2 are stuck together, and in most of your Bibles, you're going to see there's a little gap before you get to verse 3. That's because this is likely the response from the priests, from the Levites, back to the pilgrims. They've been asked to praise God, and they respond back with a blessing. And they say, may the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, bless you you pilgrims. We love what you are saying. We'd love to do that, to keep the praise of God going. And they say, so bless you. And what's so interesting 
is that that word that they use there for bless you is exactly the same word that the pilgrims have used when they're asking the priests and Levites to praise God. In some of your Bibles, verses 1, 2, and 3, it's the same. They're going to be asking to bless God, and then they're blessed back, different to what you might see in the NIV. And when we think about what a blessing is, a blessing is primarily speaking good words towards someone or speaking good words over someone. Think about when we talk about a benediction is a blessing, perhaps at the end of a church service. comes from the Latin, bene, good, well, diction, to speak, just to good speaking over someone or towards someone. But in the Bible, blessing is much richer than just words. There's much more to it than just speaking good towards someone. And we see a really good example of this. Back in Genesis chapter 12, if you remember, in Genesis 12 is where God chooses Abraham, this man, to be the father of the Israelite nation. And he makes some promises to Abraham. And he says this back in Genesis chapter 12. He says, Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will butter. You. The same word as what we've got in Psalm 134. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Same word as what we're looking at. And you can start to see that God, when he made this promise to Abraham, wasn't just saying, I'm going to say some nice words about you, Abraham. And you're probably going to say some nice words about the rest of the world, and they're going to say some nice words about you. It's far more than that. When God makes this promise to Abraham, Abraham is going to be expecting the observable, tangible goodness, genuine fruit of these words flowing to him. And that's exactly what happened. There's far more to blessing in the Bible than just speaking good words. And so when we read then in Psalm 134 this request for literally blessing to God and then the priests responding and blessing the pilgrims back, it's not just good words. It's praise to God, but it's praise to God that is backed up by a life that really means it, a life that shows the fruit of praise, not just lips, but life as well. And we see that a little bit, even... In verse 2, when they ask the priests, lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. And it's almost like they're saying, look, just you do this all day long, but just don't let it be empty ritual. Because although there's nothing that mystical and magical about lifting hands, for, for in, in the Bible in particular, it's this recognition of dependence on God. We're asked to do the same thing, suggested, Paul says to Timothy in, in the New Testament, look, I want, I want people everywhere to lift up their holy hands in prayer to God. And we see the same thing when David prays in, in Psalm 28. And if we think here, think about how uh, Hebrew poetry works. Often in the Psalms, they have this thing called parallelism where they'll say something one way and then they'll pretty much repeat it just using different words. And and David starts off and he says in in Psalm 28 too, he says, crying out to God, he says, hear my cry for mercy as I call to you for help. That's a statement. He's crying for mercy, recognizing he's dependent on God. And repeating that, he says, as I lift up my hands towards your most 
holy place. And so there's this idea that, that lifting hands, although there's nothing necessarily magical or mystical about it, there's this physical demonstration of dependence on God, just like what David's doing here. This recognition that we are dependent on him, utterly dependent on him, and he's not dependent on us at all. We are the creatures, and he is the maker. And when we start to think about that, we start to answer as well the third question that we had, which was why. Why, do, why are the pilgrims so keen on the praise of God being never-ending, never-ceasing? Why do they want to make sure that when they've gone back to their hometowns, that the, the, the priests and Levites are just going to keep the praise going all through the day they knew, but well into the night? And it's because of that recognition that he is our maker. And that's exactly what the priests respond with. When you look at verse 3, it says, May the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, bless you from Zion. That's the first reason then. When we think, why should God's praise be never-ending? It's because he's the maker. He's the maker of all things. We think about what that means. He, he's the one who who designs galaxies, you know, solar systems and supernova. They're his idea. He's the one who, who puts the universe in place and sustains it. He is the maker of all things, the maker of heaven and earth. And we try and, and, and take in what sort of power does it take to do that? And if we just take a, a, a tiny example of the universe around us, try and just to take in, what are we saying when we say that this being, this God, Yahweh, the one that the Israelites look to, the one that we look to today, that he is the maker of heaven and earth? What are we meaning when we talk about that sort of power? Let's just think about one example. It's our son. Now to, just to give you some context in terms of the power that we're talking about, the biggest bomb that has ever been detonated by any nation in all of history was a, a 50 megaton bomb but detonated and practiced by the Russians. 50 megatons. That's thousands of times more powerful than either of the bombs that dis completely destroyed Hiroshima or Nagasaki. 50 megaton nuclear bomb is the biggest bomb we've ever detonated. 50 megatons. The sun puts out more than 10 billion times that power every single second. And it has done since the sun began. Just power off the, our mental radars. And when we think, we look at the, the night sky and we think about power like that, and then we look up at the night sky and we're reminded that our sun, as powerful as it is, is just this pinprick in the middle of our galaxy. And then we pick up a textbook and we're told that our galaxy is just one of possibly billions of galaxies. And we start to think, man, we look at, look at the sun. Who could light a mega candle like that? What sort of power are we talking about? Who's this maker of heaven and earth? And then he's done that trillions of times up above us. What sort of power does this being have? What sort of awesome being are we talking about when we talk about the maker of heaven and earth? And this is just the start. This is just some of the stuff he's done. 
This is quite apart from his various other attributes, the fact that he was before all things. He's the one who actually kicked off time and matter and space. He was before the universe even began. He didn't need it. He's totally not dependent on anything else. He is totally self-existent. He is eternal. He's the Alpha and Omega. He's the one who is, we say, omnipotent. He creates the universe and doesn't break a sweat. He doesn't do it by his biceps. He does it by his mouth. He speaks and galaxies come into being. He knows everything about it. He, he directs it. He's, he's what we call omniscient. There is nothing that he doesn't know. He knows utterly everything about every one of us, every hair on our heads, the color of our eyes, every, everything we say, everything we will ever do or ever have done, every man, woman, and child on every continent, every town, every tribe, nation, and language from all of human history. What type of being are we talking about when we talk about this maker of heaven and earth? And we just start to take in some of these attributes, and then we start to understand why the Bible says that there are just angels bowed before God who never cease crying out, holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty. You are so worthy of praise that never, ever ends. You are so utterly worthy. And then we ask ourselves, how, how do we respond? Do we, do we stop and, and, and do we close our eyes, lift up our hands? Do we shed tears because we know we are so unworthy? Do we bow down on our faces or our knees and, and just cry out because we are just, just so in awe of this being? Or do we just get up and stand in honor of him? Do we just cry out and laugh at the craziness that this maker of heaven and earth loves us? And when we come to him, we're like just children just stomping back up a road wearing nothing but rags. But this maker of heaven and earth welcomes us, just welcomes us in all of his power, in his scary power, wants to call us not just his subjects but his children. He is the maker of heaven and earth. That's the first reason why he deserves never-ending praise. What we want to do, I'm going to break my message into two. We're going to spend a few minutes now just praising God. We just want to stop and give you a chance just to, to lift up your voices, just to recognize he is the maker of heaven and earth and praise him for that. And I'm going to come back and just share another reason that I think is even closer to home, closer to our hearts, why he deserves never-ending praise. So perhaps just as the band gets ready, can I just pray, just again recognizing that he is the maker and he deserves our never-ending praise. Let's pray together. Almighty Father, you alone are the maker of heaven and earth. You spoke and you brought time and space and matter into being. You designed the galaxies. You carved out the mountains. You hold the seas in the palm of your hand. You set each star in its place, and you spin every single planet as you choose. No one of us could ever hope to take in your awesome power and greatness. You are the Almighty. You are the maker of heaven and earth, and so we stand in awe of you, we bow down before you, we lift our hearts and our voices to you, and we want now to offer you our praise, our Father and our King and our Almighty God. Amen.
Can we stand together? Just to forgive us. 
Savior God to me. How great Thou art! How great Thou art! Then sings my soul. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to. So if we think then we thought about the first reason, why, why does God deserve never-ending praise? And we looked at that first reason being that he is, first, he's the maker of heaven and earth. How can he not deserve never-ending praise? He is scarily great. The second reason is a really interesting one, and it's kind of the flip side of that being scarily great. I think one of the best pictures of this comes out of a book uh, by C.S. Lewis. Some of you will have read it. Some of you may have seen the movie. It's the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And if you've read the book or seen the movie, you might remember this scene where there's the, the English children are in the house of Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And Mr. Beaver and Mrs. Beaver are tremendously excited because Narnia, the land that they're in, this mystical land which has been shrouded in winter and evil for so long, is about to change, and Mr. Beaver says it's because Aslan is on the move. The kids don't even know who Aslan is. And so they are introduced to Aslan, the king of Narnia. And they don't even recognize, they just presume Aslan is a man. Kings are men, presumably. So we read, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan, a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. Don't you know who's the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I, I'd thought he was a man. Is, is he quite safe? I, I think I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Magnificent picture that C.S. Lewis, who by this stage of his life had left atheism, which he had been, had become a Christian, 
And he's writing The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe as a Christian picture. And of course, Aslan is a, is a picture of Jesus Christ. This one who is the king, this one who the Bible describes as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he says, is he safe? No way. He's the king. He's, and, and when we think back about the, the power of what God's made, it's like, well, how can someone like that be safe? The beautiful thing about Psalm 134 is that it reminds us that even though he shouldn't be safe, God has made himself safe. And we see this in the last part of Psalm 134. When I first read this, it's like, I don't know where they're coming from. But the blessing that's given back to the pilgrims is not just, may the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, bless you. May he bless you from Zion. And the whole point of these these pilgrim songs, these, these songs of ascent, the whole point is that they sang them on their way to approach the maker of heaven and earth. He called them to Jerusalem. that They could go to a place where he was, his presence was there and they could know him, they could approach him, they could celebrate the fact that they belonged to him and they could do that in safety because he had made himself safe. And he's done that even more for us today. Had a really awesome meeting, or perhaps just to, to make the point that I'm making, he, he's safe. So the maker of heaven and earth, he deserves never-ending praise, not just because he's the maker of heaven and earth, but because we can know him. We can be safe approaching him. I've got a chance to talk about this recently. On Monday night, um, Robin and I had a catch-up with this gentleman whose name is Rabe Sidnikov. He is uh, a Finnish lawyer, and he was an exchange student with me in French Canada when I studied over in Canada for a year back in 1989. He was an exchange student, obviously, from Finland, me from New Zealand. Now, with his legal work that he does, he happened to have a conference in Sydney. I haven't seen him for 26 years, and he tracked me down, and he emailed me, said, Steve long time no speak, and I'm going to be in New Zealand, love to catch up. And so this was us, we just had a, a, an awesome dinner on Monday night, basically sharing the stories of our lives, what have we done in the last 26 years. And one of the interesting things about Rabe is that he has uh, had to do compulsory military service in the Finnish army. Part of that involved a textbook, which was by um, an atheist Finnish philosopher. So a Finnish guy, happens to be an atheist, writes a book on philosophy. Rabe's comment was, I, I just so resonated with this book. He said, I, I read it probably ten times or more. He said, I just, I really got what it was saying. I thought it was fantastic. Those of you who know me know that I have quite a different story. I had been raised as an atheist. I was an atheist when he first knew me over in Canada. I came home to New Zealand and had a two-year argument with a very patient employer and decided at the end of my two-year argument that I was wrong and that there was actually excellent evidence, philosophical, scientific, historical, for the existence of God. And I went the other way, and I became a Christian. And being a very polite and diplomatic lawyer, he didn't want to dive into a debate on the Kalam cosmological argument for God and the evidence for the resurrection. It was, just wasn't right. He wasn't interested. But very politely, he asked me about my church. You know, what do, what do you do? What's your church like? 
So I, I told him, I said, look, you know, we have a big emphasis on teaching. It's important to understand the Bible. If, if that's the word of God, we should listen to that. Big emphasis on getting into the community. We've got this beautiful family. It's just this brilliant plan of God's that he wraps a big family around our little families. And I said, and the other thing, one of the other things that we really emphasize is grace. I said, because when I wasn't going to church and I looked in, and I think people still, this is the biggest mistake people make today, looking in at the church, they think that Christianity is just this big list of rules that we've got to tick off if we're ever to be accepted by God. And I said, that's just not the deal that God does with us. He deals with us in grace. Now, Rabe is brains off the chart. I mean, his English is fantastic, as is his Finnish, Swedish, Russian, French. You know, he's just one of those stupid brain box guys. But he didn't really get grace. It was a word that he just wasn't familiar with. And he sort of, he said, grace? You know, and so I had to explain to him. I said, you know, it's, it's not the list of rules. I said, it's grace means that God accepts us exactly as we are when we come to him, just exactly as we are, whatever we're like. And um, I had an email from him when he was en route back to Finland after we'd got together. And he said, man, love New Zealand. I'm just in love with it. I'm bringing my family back here. But he said, Steve, I'm really intrigued by grace. Just something he just wasn't even familiar with. But we're familiar with grace, aren't we? Because grace is what makes the maker of heaven and earth safe. It's what makes the king of the universe safe to be approached. That's what allows him to ask us to approach him. This is the real Christian message. Our problem that we start with is, is that like dumb sheep, we've all wandered off on our own way and we, none of us live the way God wants us to. We don't even live the way we want to. We, we do the things, the dumb things we don't really want to do and the stuff we know we should do, we, we often don't do. We hurt each other, we're selfish, we're proud, we let each other down. And that's just the, the things that, that's just on our own level, let alone how God wants us to respond to him. And that's what the Bible calls sin. And it, and it makes us guilty before God. And so this relationship that he wants to have, we're cut off from him. And we're guilty. And as the perfect judge, he's, he's got to do something about that. The perfect judge has to do something about guilt. But the perfect father wants us to approach him, wants to just wrap his arms around us. So there's this cosmic scale problem. And we can't fix the problem, but he can. And so that's why Jesus came. This is what we celebrate at Easter time. We call Good Friday good because when Jesus died on the cross, he took on himself the punishment that we deserve for, for our sin guilt. So that all we have to do to be accepted by God, to be looked upon as completely guilt-free, as righteous and acceptable before God, it's just trust Jesus to do that for us. Entrust ourselves to him. Know that he is safe for us to approach. And that is why the Israelite pilgrims felt safe to approach him back then. Far more so now. We are safe to approach the maker of heaven and earth. We are called to approach the maker of heaven and earth as his children. And this might be completely new for some of you. This is what it means to become a Christian. It's not to sign up to a list of rules. 
it's to entrust ourselves to Jesus Christ. I want to just, before we finish and, and have some more time of praise, we're going to have communion, but just before we do, if there is anyone here who has never done this before, never entrusted themselves to Jesus, never become a Christian and approached God knowing that he is safe, that he, he wants us to be his children, return to him, we do that by just praying. And, and I've got an example prayer here. There's nothing magical, mystical about this. This is not a textbook prayer straight out of any part of the Bible. This is just what I think is an honest prayer admitting that we need to be saved and that he's done it. And so we'd like to take up that incredible offer. So I'm going to pray this um, before we, we go on. And, and just, if you look at these words, and if, they, if you resonate with this, if, this if, if you've got a voice, just you just feel something prompting you, just saying, that's me. I get this. I would just love it if you would just, as I, I'll pray this out loud, you don't have to say anything. If you just pray this silently with me, that would be fantastic. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, you made me. I owe my life to you. I admit that I don't live for you as you deserve. Thank you for taking my punishment on yourself. Thank you for your promise of grace and acceptance. I entrust myself to you. Please forgive me, accept me, and guide my life as I live it with you and for you. So can I just ask as well, if anyone did pray that prayer, please just let us know. Let the person you came with know. Tell me afterwards. There will be people up the front, some leaders who would love to, to pray with you afterwards. We're not going to ask you for any money. We're not going to give you a big list of stuff that you've got to do to be a member of the church. But we would just love to, to know. We would love to celebrate what is the biggest decision a human being can make. Um, and if you've got any questions, we'd love to just tell you what, how you... What does it mean to come into the big worldwide family of God? How do you get to know God better? How do you make the most of being a child of God? Please let us know. Before we finish, though, we're going to go into some more songs because the whole idea of this morning, just like the pilgrims asked for, is that God's praise would be never-ending. And so we want to finish with some more praise. But before we do that, we just want to stop as well and remember the price that Jesus paid. Remember the cost of what it took to make us safe with the maker of heaven and earth. And we do that in, in a way that Jesus asked us to do. On the night before he was crucified, he sat down and he had a final meal with his closest followers, his disciples, and he, and he took the bread that they were eating, that they would have at most meals, and he broke it. And he just looked at them and he, and he, as he broke the bread and he said, this is, this is my body. This is like a picture of my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he, he picked up the cup that they would have with their meal. And he said, this cup is the new covenant, the new arrangement, the new deal in my blood, speaking about his death. Do this whenever you drink it. Do it in remembrance of me. And so we're going to finish now. The band's going to lead us in, in, again, just a couple of songs of just praise to the maker of heaven and earth who has made himself safe. And as we do that, just whenever you're ready, just feel free to, to come up and, and take the, the bread and the cup just to remember him. Remember the one who came and died for us. 
so that the maker of heaven and earth could receive, just as he deserves, the never-ending praise of we who are safe to approach him, we who know him. Thanks, guys. Thank mm-hmm. you.